So grateful for you, Mike, and just all our staff and uh, elders who um, take up extra work, extra prayers, all those things uh, when things happen. Well, as Mike mentioned, uh, last um, two weeks ago, Tuesday, January 17th, uh, five men were aboard a small plane. All five of these men were members of Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and this plane crashed on its way to Texas, actually crashed one mile from landing. Um, Four men aboard that plane um, died. Uh, One man survived. All the men uh, know their Lord and Savior Jesus, so they are in a far better place, and while we here on this side grieve, we do celebrate when one of God's saints goes home Uh, to be with him. I knew all those men except one, uh, personally and at a relatively deep level. The man who was flying the plane is a man named Steve Tucker. He He owned a saddle business. He made saddles for horses, actually owned the largest saddle company on earth. And that's where they were flying to where his saddle company was. And Steve was one of the original elders of Harvest Church. Harvest started in 2013 on the international calendar, so it's only a nine-year-old church. But we started, I had the privilege of being one of the uh, pastors, an associate pastor who helped plant the church, and we started with only eight elders, and uh, Steve Tucker was one of those. And if you've ever been in a room where a meeting takes place, and there's a voice you wait for, a person that pulls everything being said together, and everyone seems to wait to hear what that person would say because they speak with such wisdom and biblical clarity. That was Steve Tucker. He was a man who all of our elders, after we had had a discussion, and sometimes our discussions got heated, we would always wait. What's Steve Tucker going to say? Because he spoke with such biblical wisdom and authority. Uh, Another man aboard that plane was uh, Pastor Bill Garner. Pastor Bill um, served in Memphis in many churches, and he actually was married to my wife's sister. So we would call that my brother-in-law. I know some people said, we we don't have a word for brother-in-law. So we just went with brother while Bill was here in Ethiopia. He's my brother. And uh, his last sermon that he preached was right here at IEC on November 21st. He preached here at IEC. He got to teach downline. And my wife and I, Margaret, have said we're so grateful that he got to be here with us in Ethiopia and he got to meet so many of you. He uh, fell in love with this place. He had a heart for it. He, He told me one time, he said, I'll never come to Ethiopia. And then he brought my wife's parents here and they're not big travelers, but he got them to come here and visit. And when he left, he said, I'm coming back. Well, the Lord had other plans, but I'm grateful that he got to know you and fell in love with you and fell in love with this church and what God is doing here um, at IEC in and through the community and the people here. Uh, Love this church. So many of you are doing amazing ministries out and about the city and among the nations. So it's a true joy. Uh, The other man, the one survivor of the plane crash was a man named Kenan Vaughn. Kenan and I began working together in our early 20s as youth pastors. And uh,
On Monday, I got to go see Kenan. Flew from Memphis to San Antonio. San Antonio is a few hour flight ride from there. And um, when I arrived at the funeral last week for, uh, for my brother-in-law, Bill Garner, one of the first people I saw was Soup Campbell. And Soup's a man very special to me and special to Kenan. You see, Kenan's father died when he was 16. And I think if you ask Kenan who is his father, his spiritual father and his father here on earth, now it's Soup Campbell. So I saw Soup at Bill's funeral. And I said, Soup, I want to go see Kenan. Soup said, I do too. So we, while we were talking, Soup quickly got us plane tickets and we were able to fly to San Antonio to see Kenan. And um, sitting with Soup, uh, hearing Kenan speak, he remembers the crash. And here's a pastor, the lead pastor of our church, a man I've worked with. I've worked with him longer than I've worked with anybody in my life. I've worked with him for over 20 years. We did youth ministry together. When he started Downline Ministries, Lord allowed me to be beside him starting that. When we started Harvest Church, I got to be with him. So uh, God's given me a unique friend and partner in ministry like no other. But to hear him ask questions, questions that he knew the theological answer to, but that he needed to hear his spiritual father say it's okay. To hear his spiritual father say anybody would be praying that, anybody would be thinking that was a blessing to my soul. See, over 20 years ago, Kenan invited me to come to Soup's house. Kenan said, hey, I'm, I'm going at 5 a.m. in the morning, going to a neighborhood we don't normally go in, and we're going to sit at this man's table named Soup Campbell, and you got to come. So I joined him. And for over three and a half years, Kenan and I sat with a group of a small group of men gathering each week, going on trips, traveling the world at the table of Soup Campbell. And that's been one of the biggest blessings in my life. Actually, that has shaped my ministry more than anything else in my entire life is learning not just Bible. I learned Bible, but seeing what does a man of God look like? What does it look like to be a man of God? And I didn't just hear it from soup. Did you know that? I saw it. I saw how he treated his wife. I saw how he treated other people. I saw how he apologized when he had sinned or made a mistake and he would confess that. And I learned what does it mean to be a man of God up close and personal. So to be able to walk in and see Kenan with soup was indeed very special. And you know, God is... God's in control. He's over these things. We grieve when tragedy happens. But I tell you this, God had planned for Soup to be here with us this Sunday months ago, not knowing what, uh, what I would personally be walking through. But let me tell you, I needed Soup here. So I hope you will be blessed as Soup shares the word of God with us. But as your pastor, I need a pastor. So... Soup comes up. I want to pray for him. I'm so grateful he, he is here to minister to us as a church and to minister to me individually. Let me pray for you, Soup. God, you know all things. And Lord, we get to grieve. We get to be sad. And, and I thank you that this congregation has surrounded me and my family. And Lord, there's a lot of people in our congregation that knew these men. 
Lord, I know uh, Weston and Andrea and the Ostell family and the Bridges family were all close to these men. So there's many here in our church, IEC, that grieve this. Lord, I thank you that you allowed our church to get to know Bill. I thank you that you allowed them to get time with him and see the man that he is and how you had been working in his life. And I thank you that this church has grieved well with me. I thank you that they're, being, they're ministering to their pastor. I thank you for that. And I thank you that in your good sovereignty, you saw to bring my spiritual father here this week. We didn't plan this out. We planned for him to come, but we didn't know what the circumstances would be, but you did. So I thank you that soup is here. And I pray that our congregation would not only hear the words that soup speaks, but that they would see the legacy of men behind him that have been impacted through his life. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. What I want to do this morning, and in the first service, uh, pastor said a prayer, and while he was saying the prayer, uh, something struck my heart. And I memorized all my, uh, all my talks, messages, my teachings. Uh, one, uh, God wired me that way, but I know another reason why is because I'm going blind too, and I have, I'll be ready when all that happens. I, uh, it's just like my wife, I asked her, uh, will you love me when I'm old? She says, I do. Okay? <laughs> and so I just said, are you ready for me when I go blind? And, and, uh, but you know, her beauty is so tremendous, I still see it in my blindness. Amen? Yeah. I love that lady. I want to talk to you this morning. I just want to communicate uh, from the heart. I want to communicate some things that, that, that God has enlightened me on uh, in the light of what has happened uh, with this plane crash. Uh, there's probably, we have to know that God is sovereign. We say it, we say it. So when I was sitting down and talked to Kenan, who survived the crash, I said, you are one who's really gotten to experience truly what it means that God's in control. And we said, it comes off our lips, and he is Lord. Whether we know it, acknowledge it or not, he's Lord. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof and the world and they that live therein. Not a blade of grass, not a grain of sand. Nothing happens without him knowing about it, allowing it, being involved. Because if he wasn't, he would cease to be God. And he is Lord. And many times we've sang that, we've said that. And there's not a person on that plane who probably not at one time did not say, God, here's my life. Use me in any way you want to. There's not probably a person in this room that has not said sometime or another, God, here's my life. Use me in any way you desire and see fit. But then we always put a colon or semicolon or we have fine print that says, but do it in a way that I'll enjoy it but do it in a way that I would design and would have it done that way. 
And many times we look at the sovereignty of God, the lordship of God, like Great Britain. Great Britain is a constitutional monarchy. It has a royal family, but it also has a prime minister in parliament. And prime minister in parliament makes the laws and enacts the laws in Great Britain. And they will send the document to the royal family just for them to sign off or, or have it. But the royal family may say, I don't like it document. We don't agree with it. And they would say, well, that's okay. That's fine. You don't have to. Prime Minister in the Parliament makes the rules whether the royal family signs off on it or not because of the constitutional monarchy. And sometimes that's the way we treat God. We'll say, uh, God, here's my life from point A to point B in the subpoints, and I want to lay it out. Lord, I want to Go get a good education. I want to live in a certain community, a certain country, a certain neighborhood. I want a job that does this and pays this much. And while I'm out and about, I look for a mate. I won't be obvious about it, but I'll be looking for me a spouse on the way. And this is the kind of spouse I want. These are the qualifications of this spouse I want. And I'll go to church, Lord, I'll go to church every now and then, and I'll get a church where I can sing in the choir, usher, and do some things. But I don't want to be too involved because it'll take up too much of my time. But i show up. And, Lord, if you wouldn't mind, give me a life of no suffering, no persecution, no sickness, and, um, Lord, if you would just sign off on this for me. God takes it, looks at it, and he says, you know, that's a pretty good life. You lay that out pretty good. And then he takes it and rips it in half. Then he hands you a piece of paper. He says, sign this. And you say, Lord, the, the page is blank. He says, just sign it. But I always was taught to read stuff before I sign it. You just sign it, we'll fill it in as we go. But Lord, what if you put on that stuff I don't really want to do or like or be involved in or it might bring some suffering, persecution, those kind of things? Just sign it. We'll fill it in as we go. See, that's what we do. We come in here, we raise our hands, we say, you are Lord, you are Lord. Use my life in any way you see fit. Use me, Lord. My life is yours. And God tells us to do something, and we say, no, you're my Lord, but I'm your prime minister. He's an absolute monarch. He's sovereign. He's in control. And if God so sees fit to get his glory out of a plane crash, then that's what he does. So do we really know what we're saying and what that means when we say, you're in control of my life? You can have it. 
Do we really know what we're saying? Or do we want to put a disclaimer in there? A disclaimer. Many times we don't understand what he does. We don't have to. Many times we don't agree with what he does. We don't have to. Many times we don't like what he does. We don't have to. Sometimes what he does brings pain, suffering, grief. Our job is just to trust. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to thine own understanding because our own understanding will fall short every time. Here you have an infinite God who tries to communicate through language, through his spirit, and those kind of things with a finite mind that we might understand him. And many times we don't. But what we can do is trust him that he knows what he's doing and that it's for his glory. For some of those men's lives, there were over 500 people who showed up to a building, some who'd never darkened the doors of a church, some who had never heard the gospel, and they heard the good news for the very first time. Some of those men's lives and their influence spread all over the globe, and it pointed people to begin to think about their life and think about Christ themselves. And we don't know. We have no idea that if the next breath is promised to us. Now we say it. It comes off our lips. But that plane crash gave us a reality check. Because those are folks who were close to us. About a year ago, I began to set forth in my life and made it a determination in my life that I would not leave the house, I would not let any period of time go by, a long period of time, where I would stay in a disagreement and stay in the wrong with my wife, number one. That's my very best friend on the earth. And I said I would not let a day, I would try not to let a minute, I would try not to let any period of time go by where I've got a beef with her, a disagreement. Because at any time, any time, any time, any second, any minute, the next breath, we not, may not exist here anymore. And I would not want her living with the grief that the last conversation I had with her was an argument. So I began to text people, begin to call people that I may have had a beef with or strife with because I don't want them carrying that weight. And that load. Because we don't live in the reality. It may not be an accident. It may not be a plane crash. It may not be a tragedy. Jesus may part the sky any second. So do we really live like tomorrow's not promised? Some of you in this room right now got beef with family, with wife, with children, with parents, you need to get right. You need to get it right. Because you don't want to let the last thing known about you and have them sitting in line at your funeral telling lies about how you were so good, how you were so right, and you had beef with these folks.
Don't let the day go by without getting something that's straightened out. Don't let it go by. So that was a reality check for me. A true reality check that tomorrow's not promised. A true reality check. And I want to share that with you. Is he Lord? Is he sovereign? Or is he not? When you say, Lord, this life is yours, do you really know what you're saying? Do you really know what you're saying? Because Acts 1.8, Paul says, I mean, uh, uh, the right Luke says, he, Luke writes, and Jesus said to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses. That's the word martyria. That's the Greek word martyria. That's the word martyr. Can you imagine you're sitting here, you're following Jesus, and he's telling you, you're going to die for me. And if you go study the life of the apostles, every single one of them died a death in the following of Christ, being hung, being tortured, and they almost got John. They had him boiling, but he got out the pot. Could you imagine? Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to die. And guess what they still did, y'all? They still followed. Could you imagine Apostle Paul after his Damascus Road experience, Acts chapter 9? And then he says, Ananias, go down there and lay hands on him, lift him scales up off of him. Ananias said, hey, this is the dude being killing up folks. He says, get on down there. He's a servant of mine, and I must show him how much he must what, y'all? how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Who tells people that when they come down the aisle? Hey, I know you want to follow Christ, but let me tell you something. You're going to suffer. Let me tell you something. You might have to die for it. Then the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. I want to look at his life this morning. 2 Timothy 2.2. He's telling Timothy. He's in his last days. He knows it. He's getting ready to go home to be with the Lord. And that's what his desire was. He would say, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? So what have our brothers done, Steve? They gained it all. They gained it all. Then Paul says, man, I desire, I desire, I desire to be in the presence of the Lord. But he says, man, it's more expedient for me to be with you here right now. But my desire is to be with the Lord. Now let's look at what some of his lifestyle was. And then in his 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, he says, the things you've heard from me, Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, these same exact things I want you to entrust, deposit into faithful men, neuter noun, faithful men, women, boys and girls, faithful people who shall be made able to teach others also. And that word, the things you've heard from me, is the word para. Para means alongside. So everything Timothy learned, it was alongside Paul. Paul was a rabbi. Disciples followed rabbi, and they were with him 24-7. They were attached to their hip. 
and they followed their halakha. A halakha is how a rabbi or a teacher interpreted and walked out the text. So he followed him. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, he says, Timothy, you have fully known all my sufferings, persecutions, all everything. So he said, Timothy, you not only seen them and know them, you've experienced some of this with me. So people are always talking about Timothy. He's timid, 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 timid. Well, you better find out what you're really saying when you say he's timid. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. And let's see if you was walking with your rabbi and the same thing that uh, Jesus was a rabbi. And disciples know that it's 90% better that what happens to their rabbi would happen to them. And how many ways did the apostles die? Many of them got hung, some of them upside down. They died just like their rabbi died. So Timothy knows that. That's a part of this rabbi following. And so here he is following his rabbi Paul. So let's look at some of the things his rabbi endured. And let me see if you got caught between any of these two commas, if your knees would rattle a little bit too. Because disciples knew Following the rabbi, some of the same things could happen to them. Let's look at it. He says, are they descendants of Abraham? So, is, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if one insane. I more so. In far more labors. In far more imprisonments. When we go to a town, we want to know how the hotels are. When Paul goes to a town, he wants to know how the prisons are. And many prisons in that day, they were underground. There was a, a, a vent like up top. And sometimes people could even walk by and urinate on the prisoners down there. There were some prisoners that had holdings and they would have the prisoners in one part. It would be a drain this way. <coughs> it would be a, a, a place where water flowed. They would open this up, drown them, and then flood them out the other way. Paul spent a lot of time in prisons. <coughs> Beaten times without number. Often in danger of death. Five times I received 39 lashes from his Jewish brothers. Now, see, this needs some context. Now, when the Jews would beat someone, 39 lashes according to Torah, it was a law. If a Jew beat another Jew, he could only beat that person for 39 lashes. 40 was calculated to kill a person. So Paul took 39 lashes on five different occasions. What was happening? Well, he'd talk about Yeshua Messiah. He would talk about the way. He would talk about Yeshua Messiah was the Christ. He was the one who came through the lineage of David. He is the Messiah. They would go blasphemy. Man, we're looking for a king who's going to come. He's going to be a revolutionary. He's going to get us out from under this, this, uh, <clears throat> this oppression. 
And no way our king is going to be born in some stable and this kind of thing. Blasphemy. He says, what I got to do to come say it again? Got to take another beat down. <coughs> Can I get some water? You got to take another beat down. Five different times, y'all. Five different times. Now, some people say Jesus was beat this many times when he was beat. No. Jews did not beat Jesus. Romans did. They were not relegated to this number. It was said that Jesus was beat so bad, so bad, that the folks who were with him when he went in one side, thank you, Okay, thank you. When the folks who beat him, when he went in one side, some documents say they didn't even recognize who he was when he came out the other side. He was beat so bad. I have a disciple who's a special force. Uh, he's in special forces. And he said he was reading his Bible. And one of his trainers came by, one of his officers came by, the one over him. He says, you reading your Bible? He says, yes, sir. He says, Jesus is a, used a cuss word, and then he used a slang term for a female body part. He says, that's what Jesus is. Man, that burnt me up. That burnt me up. I've been in football stadiums, 50,000 people, and I'm standing here in a section of people. And in one of those sections is the, is the alcoholic drunk section, the most rowdy partying group in the fraternity in the university. And I'm sitting here, and one guy, two people over, he's GD this, GD that. Man, it's burning me up, it's burning me up. And so the team made a good play. And I throw my hand out there to him like that for some high five. He, he grabbed it. Man, I yanked him over to me, got him in face to face. I said, I've never damned your father, so don't you ever damn my heavenly father. And I let him go. My friend said he thought we was going to have to fight everybody in there. <clears throat> but he sat down and got quiet the rest of the stadium. So that burnt me up. So I told my special force guy, I said, now go and make a document. I want you to study the real, actual crucifixion of Jesus. I want you to study and put pictures of what a cat of nine tails is. That's that whip that's got glass, it's got stone, it's got metal in it, that when you put it on somebody and you rip it through them, it just rips them apart. And some documents say you can see all the insides of Jesus and his internal organs. And all the blood that must have been there. Then they beat his face to where it was unrecognizable. And most people didn't even survive that beating. They didn't make it out. But our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our Champion, our Hero, he came out and carried his crossbeam as far as he could.
and he went to the cross. And on the cross when they nailed him, he had to yo-yo up and down to get air in his lungs, to breathe, to complete the work, to get to the I am finished. And I said, you put that document together. And the next time one of those guys said to you, you give him that document and say, could you survive this? You're trained. You're special force trained. You're trained to handle all kinds of suffering situations. Can you survive this? And you've got guns, knives. You've been trained to break people's neck. He volunteered himself for this. And he would have did it if you had been the only one standing there. I said, give that to him and you say, do you think who you just talked about is somebody weak? Could you survive this? So all these pictures we got of Jesus being weak, look like he just come from the salon, look like he just had a bath in milk. No, he went through and he did it for you and I. Paul went through five of these. Why did he do it? He did it because he knew the master. He knew God's sovereignty. 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Now, stoning that day was prescribed. You didn't just go get a bunch of rocks and throw them at people. That wasn't what was happening. No. You had the person who, you would take him to a cliff. And it had to be 10 or 20 meters down. And you push him off. If the fall didn't kill him, the person who was the oldest and had the most clout they would get one rock. You get one rock. So if you didn't like somebody, is this the size rock you're going to get? No, you're going to get something like this. You're going to walk over and drop it. The next person walk over and drop it. Next. So they dropped these rocks on him, left him under that pile, and left him for dead. Left him for dead. He crawled out money and rocks, went back into the same town and told them, hey, I ain't through telling you what I was trying to tell you. And we say, what kind of man is this? This dude is extraordinary. What kind of person is this? That's how we describe it. But do you not know this was normal Christianity for their day? He wasn't the only one going through this kind of stuff. It was all kind of people going through suffering, being martyred, going through persecution, probably some who went through worse than him. This was normal Christianity. So when we say, Lord, take my life and use it any way you want to, are we ready to go between any of these commas? I told Kenneth, we were talking, we had some laughing. I said, yeah, man, you get up there to heaven. <clears throat> I said, uh, you'll be able to sit down with Paul, and he'll go, yeah, I was shipwrecked three times. You'll be, be able to say, well, I was plane crashed, and y'all can, can compare notes. 
He says, I was shipwrecked three times. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have spent frequent journeys in dangers of, from rivers, in dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such eternal things. He says, if that wasn't enough, he says, I have uh, the daily pressures on me concerned for all the churches. So this is a man who had a life who was surrendered to Christ. And if we don't get new bodies, and if we keep the scrapes and scratches that we have on these bodies, you ain't going to have no problem knowing who this is. The word Christian. The word Christian. Acts 11, 26. It says... The disciples were called Christian first in Antioch. The reason Paul got stoned in our text here is because he was in Antioch talking about Yeshua Messiah, the way. He stirred them up. He stirred them up. They were mad. Then he left there and went to Lystria. And some of the influencers followed him over and stirred up those people and they stoned him. But a persecution broke out in Antioch. It says the disciples were first called Christian in Antioch. So what happened was they got stirred up. They got mad at the disciples for following Yeshua Messiah, and they began to persecute them. And they said, every time we squeeze these folks, every time we come down on these folks, what comes out of them is the character of Christ. So we're going to call them little Christ, little Christ, Christian, Christian, little Christ. So the title Christian was not one that they went around calling each other. It was one that was earned. It was a name earned because of what came out of them during the persecution and suffering. If I had an orange and I squeezed into a glass and I gave it to this gentleman right here and he tasted it and he says, this tastes like pickle juice. Y'all got pickles here? Huh? Or he says it tastes like watermelon. Should watermelon come out of an orange? Come on, talk to me, church. Then we should question that orange. So if a person says, I'm a Christ follower, and persecution, difficulty, those things come down on them and squeezes them. If the character of Christ does not come out of them, their Christianity, their life should be questioned. Can you kind of tell if you work with children by the character they display? Can you kind of tell about the home they come from by the character they display? Can you tell it most of the time? It's not true all the time, but can you tell it a lot of times? Can you church? <clears throat> the word Christian is a very unique word. It's a Greek word. It has a Hebrew concept, Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And it has a Latin ending, I-A-N-O-S, Christianos. 
I-A-N-O-S, Christianos. The Latin ending means a servant or slave in the household of. A servant or slave in the household of. So a Christian is one who is a servant or slave in the household of Christ. So if we're in the household of Christ, our character should display the household we come out of. And if we're going to be like Christ, suffering is going to be a part of our life. And if we're going to be like Christ, death may be on the agenda for our life. So are we ready? I remember, this is my 141 trip that I know. Some people say my number's low. I don't know. These trips for me is like going across the street. That's why I don't much keep up count with them. It's like going across the street for me. But I remember the first trip, I was going with my disciple brother Herb. I went and get, made sure my insurance policy was paid up, make sure everything was in order. My wife was like, what are you doing? So I'm making sure things are in order. I said, because honey, I got to go, but I don't have to come back. And there have been times I didn't think I was coming back. But that ain't my problem. That ain't my worry. That ain't my issue. I belong to him. And like we say in my neighborhood, bad grandma, is he is or is he ain't? He is Lord or he's not. He's sovereign and in control or he's not. I believe he is. I want to walk in the is. I want to walk in as he is. And really, that's the only secure place you can walk. That's the only secure place you can walk. I went, let me see, I guess, what, a month ago, Linda? I was in Ghana. And uh, I had a chance to do a disciple conference in Cape Coast, one of the largest slave castles on the West Coast in Ghana. And, you know, I've been there twice, and this is my first time being able to teach, and I was just like, Lord, how do I honor this place? What do I say? What do I say? What do I say? So we had the tour. I'm discipling, teaching. We're going through the Great Commission, disciple-making things. And as I was looking down in the dungeons, while I'm teaching this group of pastors and their wives, the Holy Spirit came to me. And he said, share this with them. So I said, you know, there were 270 to 300 million captives who came through those dungeons. Only 12 million made it through the Middle Passage to other lands. That's 4%. I said, I'm a 4%er. I'm a 4%er. I said, it was horrendous, horrendous how they treated Christianity. And, and there was a church right over the dungeon. And some people harbor on that 
And they want to blame many times European Americans. They want to blame the Spanish, the Portuguese, and all that. But the first ones to bring the captives to the dungeons were the Africans. And they're with the appetite for the trade. And they were talking about there was a church up there. There was a church up there. I said, and, and two of them, they began to talk and debate. I said, can I say something? I said, any book, any book, whether it's the Bible, whether it's a book on Hinduism, whether it's Quran, any book is left up to the interpretation of the reader. Any book. And I said, there's no, I said, I got the same book they got. I follow the same book they follow. But there's no way they interpret the heart of the author of the book I read if they treated humanity that way in them dungeons. No way. So that silenced that. No way they could have interpreted the book right if you treat humanity that way. And I was looking down there, I said, you know what? Horrendous things happened. I said, but I'm proud to be a part of a lineage of a people who could handle so much suffering, who dealt with so much, made it through the Middle Passage, made it to the land where I, am, where I live. I said, I'm proud to be such, in, in, in such a heritage, in such a legacy and to be able to come back. And I said, you know what? When I was a young boy, and I stayed with my grandparents a lot, we had guinea fowl. Guinea fowl came from Africa. They're the best watchdogs you can have. <laughs> then I said, I could see in my grandparents who were just a few generations removed from slavery, I said, I could see in them African heritage. And I said, African culture spread to the world from those dungeons. And I said, I love okra. They start clapping. I love some okra. Okra came from here. And I said, if I live a life of passivity and I don't be aggressive, if I don't live a life of courage, if I don't live a life of boldness, if I don't live a life that can deal with persecution, suffering, and those kind of things. If I live a life that will not do that, if I don't be bold, if I don't be courageous, then I will not honor those who came through those dungeons. That's my worry for Kenan when I shared that. Don't look back. Push forward. Honor those lives that went down by pushing forward in boldness with the gospel, building disciples. Amen? All of us stand on the shoulders or the death or the martyrism of someone else. Revelation tells us that the testimony of the martyrs are crying out now. So will I live a life that honors that?
In closing, there's a movie called Private Ryan. I don't know if many of you have seen it. But this mother had like seven sons. They all went to war. And there was a rule that, you know, if, if all your sons out there and you just got one or two left, you got to bring them home or, or the family line will die out because there's no sons to continue. So all the rest of the sons were killed. There was one left, Private Ryan. So they dispatched a unit to go find him and bring him back. And everybody in that unit to bring him back, they got him back, but everybody in that unit died. And one soldier told him, live a life that honors what happened to get you back. And in the closing scene, he, he's at the grave and he asks his wife, have I, I, I been a good man? Have I been a good man? Have I lived a life to honor those have I lived a life to honor those who gave their life that I might continue on? Are we living a life to honor the life that Christ gave for us? For those who made a way for us, that God may be glorified. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to be here. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these, your saints, your warriors. Lord, help us to glorify you. Lord, help us to surrender life to you that you may use it in any way you please that you might be glorified. That others might come to know you. It's all about others, others, others. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.